Hey, that was a bit heavy. <laughs> Can we all just acknowledge that um, Toby went totally rogue just then? That was not on the script. <laughs> and Lauren was like, what, you want the microphone? Yeah, sure. Um, hey, I'm Tom. I usually haunt 11 o'clock. Thanks for letting me show up to 9.15. Um, it is a heavier talk today. Uh, we're talking about Obadiah. It's the fifth and final forgotten book in our series. And the main thing that comes through in this book is this thing called the Day of the Lord. We kind of sung about it in the second song before. Um, if you kind of work your way through Obadiah and you just highlight every time the word day comes up, you'll quickly realize that that's kind of the common theme going through. And today, what we are going to talk about is all of the different days in Obadiah, how that lands back in our world, you're going to have to work really hard with me for the first kind of 15 minutes. It's going to feel like a history lecture. And then the second 15 minutes, you're going to be like, ah, oh, this applies to my life. Fantastic. So if you could bear with me 15 minutes, then it'll start to get good. Does that sound okay? Great. Um, but before we really launch in, I would love to ask you, how are you feeling today? What emotional state did you bring to church. I imagine that uh, by this time in the year, 2022, some of you have basically checked out of the year. You've quite quit on 2022. You are just ready for the next year. I'm hoping that as we talk about the day of the Lord, it will give you kind of a bit of clarity and a bit of zeal in your Christian faith for December to finish the year strongly. Some of you in the room, I imagine, you've come to church feeling guilty. Um, you feel like, I really need to confess my sins to God. He, I am nowhere near living the way that he would have me live. And I hope that today you will find a new sense of peace with God. Uh, some of you come today, some of us come today to church uh, in a state of suffering. Um, actually, your world is upside down. You're weak. Your month, your year has not gone anywhere near the way that you would like it to. Um, firstly, I just want to cheer for you and say well done for making it to church. Well done for tuning into the live stream, whatever you managed to do. Um, and I hope that today, in light of the day of the Lord, you actually find some comfort. Because the day of the Lord, when Jesus ultimately comes back to set everything right and to bring the new heavens and the new earth where there is no pain, no mourning, no suffering, no crying, no death. If we set our eyes on that future day, I hope it helps you to endure the suffering in our lives right now. Now I would say the book of Obadiah is very simple. You might have been reading it through going, I don't understand a thing that just happened. It's very simple as long as you have one or two keys to understanding. So let me give you some of those keys to understanding now. The first one's come up on the screen. This is just a Google map that I've overlaid a J and an E onto. Um, throughout the book of Obadiah, you will find reference to Esau and Edom. Now, for our purposes today, they are the same people. They both start with E, and that's roughly where they were hanging out at the time. The other group of people you'll find are Judah, Jacob, and Jerusalem, the triple Js, and they all, uh, for our purposes today, mean the same thing as well. And you can see roughly where they were hanging out. Now, this book of Obadiah is a message from God through Obadiah the prophet to Judah, Jacob, Jerusalem, about Edom and Esau. 
Now think about this with me for just a second. Edom and Esau, who are the recipients of the negativity of this prophecy, probably never actually read Obadiah. It was a message for God's people, the Jays, against their enemies, the E's, and yet the E's probably never received it. Why would that be? Have a think about that as we launch into the book. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read you the whole first nine verses again and add some explanatory notes. Does that sound all right? It says, The vision of Obadiah, this is what the Sovereign Lord says about Edom. We've heard a message from the Lord, an envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. So there's a battle coming against Edom. Verse 2 is particularly helpful, so I've put it up on the screen. See, I will make you small among the nations. This is God talking about Edom. I'll make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. If you're Edom right now, you're not exactly feeling the love. Verse 3 is also very helpful. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. This is a message against the pride of Edom. Verse 4, uh, it's not going to come up on the screen, but I'll keep going. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Now, this thieves thing is the idea that if someone breaks into your house as a thief, they won't take everything. They will just take some stuff. But God's destruction on Edom won't be only on some stuff, it will be total. That's the idea of the thieves. So if thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, there's our day word, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Verse 9 will close us out for the moment. It's on the screen. Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountain will be cut down in the slaughter. That was heavy. Very direct and God is basically saying, I am going to smash Edom. I am going to smash Esau. The obvious question at this point is, why? What did they do wrong? Now, we've already covered verse 3. This kind of gives some of the reason. And you can see that pride is on display. And there's a word here for our world already where you go, yeah, there is a lot of proud people in the world. There are a lot of proud thoughts in my own heart. And God consistently throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament positions himself against the proud in favor of the humble. And so there's just a little nudge towards humility in our lives. But I said before that Obadiah is a very simple book. You just need a little bit of backstory. Verse 11, if I give you some backstory, really explains why God is so upset at Edom and Esau. So verse 11 reads on the screen, On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you, Edom, were like one of them. Let's pull back our map. I've added in Babylon. 
who were the military superpower in that part of the world at that time. Uh, now, as part of God's judgment on his own people, um, in around 587-586 BC, depending on which historian you listen to, the Babylonian army comes from the right-hand side of the screen, from the east, and they come and besiege and eventually conquer God's people who are hanging out in the promised land where they really want to be. And Babylon then actually export or exile um, God's people to Babylon. And now we're talking about maybe the book of Daniel, if that rings a bell. And here's the thing. Um, if you've read Genesis, you might remember the pairing of the names Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. They were originally brothers. And so the Jerusalem people, the Judah people, and the Edomites, they're kind of like cousins or long-lost cousins. These are not complete different nations. The Js are kind of hoping that the Es will come and help them out against the Bs. And that is absolutely not what happened. The opposite happened. The Edomites joined the pylon of God's people. They actually... Um, kind of verse 14, it won't come up on the screen, but it says, Don't, you should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives. So you can tell kind of what happened. Some people fled from Jerusalem and they fled through the Edomite territory and were cut down instead of finding a place of safety and rescue. The Jays were hoping the E's would help them out. The E's actually joined the pylon in around about 586-587 BC. Is it sounding like a history lesson? Are you sticking with me? Now, we can get to that final stage of this first part of the talk where we ask, is this all just Old Testament stuff? Did this actually happen? Is this just teaching us some kind of moral and it's a made-up story? I want to suggest to you that this really did happen. And here's a timeline that we will develop as the day goes on. Depending on who you listen to, 586, 587 BC, that was when God's people were exiled by Babylon. Obadiah is written sometime shortly after that event has happened. And it seems like the judgment that Obadiah lays out for Edom actually happened. If you want to be real specific about it, 553 BC is when God smashed the Edomites, through the Babylonians coming back and having another crack. And if you want to um, check Wikipedia for it, you can see that highlighted sentence that they were knocked out in the 6th century, that's the 500s BC, 553 BC, if you want to be really specific. So I want to say this actually happened. This actually happened. Which makes us a little bit... Uh, uncomfortable about the idea that, well, maybe the day of the Lord, as it refers to Jesus coming back, will also happen. Let's move on. Basically, if you've stuck with me up till now, you've done very well. That was the history lecture side of things. And if all you've grasped is what's on the screen, you're tracking well. There was prophesied a day for Edom. It actually happened in 553 BC. Thumbs up if we're tracking with me. Still doing all right? Let's move on. Verse 14 and 15 is where it gets a bit spicy for us. I'm going to pull it up on the screen, see if you can see the common word that I have underlined and bolded, so you can definitely see it. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Change up 
the day of the Lord is near for all nations. So far, verse four, first 14 verses, it's all about a day of the Lord is coming for Edom. Actually happened, 553 BC. Apparently, there is also a day coming for all nations. And now we start to find ourselves a bit more engaged in Obadiah, personally. Some people, if we drop back into history for just a second, have actually said, no, nah, no, nah, that all nations thing, that's already happened. We don't need to worry about it. That has already been fulfilled. How could that possibly be true? Back to the timeline. Some people would say that God was using Babylon to judge Edom, but Babylon themselves weren't exactly God's favorite people. And so surely at some point, God's got to lay down some judgment on Babylon as well. And maybe that's what it refers to in the day of the Lord for all nations. And maybe that was fulfilled in the fall of Babylon, which you could probably date to around 539 BC. So maybe it's already happened. Maybe in the fall of Babylon, the day of the Lord for all nations has already come. A very, a very reasonable option. Um, other people have said, no, 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 this is all nations. It doesn't say a day of judgment for Babylon. It says judge all nations. And so I need an empire that is a bit broader in its scope. I need someone who's conquered all of the known world or something like that. I need maybe Alexander the Great to be the fulfillment of the day of the Lord for all nations. Or maybe even more than that, I need Rome uh, who conquered more than anyone had kind of seen they'd conquered before. And these are all very reasonable options until you read the New Testament. And you go, wait, it seems like we're picking up on this idea of the day of the Lord throughout the New Testament again, and it's very clear what it refers to. That the day of the Lord for all nations will fully happen. The ultimate fulfillment of that is when Jesus comes back. And what's fascinating about this timeline is we are not outside of it. 2022 sits within the timeline, we are still waiting for the day of the Lord. We've been waiting a long time, and some people, as Matt said in between the songs, are, are saying, where is this day? Is it actually going to come? But it will come. It'll come like a thief in the night when you're not expecting it. And we sit now waiting for the day of the Lord to come in all of its fullness. So here's what we're up to so far. The day of the Lord for everyone is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus comes back. And this is our final point. We ourselves are waiting. We are waiters. We are waiting for Jesus to come back. So let's take a little bit of a breather. I would ask you, what are you waiting for in your life? What are you waiting for. Maybe this morning you had to line up to get a coffee, uh, you were waiting for your coffee, but maybe more significantly than that, all of us to some extent, uh, we have some future, some future moment that we are anticipating eagerly that we hope will come, and we've kind of shaped our lives around it. Uh, you are waiting for something in your life to happen. It might be as simple as we're waiting for interest rates to drop because then our property will be worth more or we could buy a property or I want my interest rates to drop. Maybe for you it's a little bit more uh, personal and you say, I'm waiting for a partner. I'm waiting for a child or I'm waiting for my child to grow up so I don't have to look after them anymore. Or I'm waiting for Monday at very least. And um, 
Everyone is kind of waiting for something. At a very personal level, some of us in the room are probably waiting for a treatment or for a diagnosis. And that future thing that we hope will happen directs all of our life planning and the way that we set ourselves up in this moment right now. The thing that's coming, we kind of reverse engineer our day from it. Um, Joel, if you're in the room, we back solve. Yeah, you thought you were going to heckle me, but you know, that's fine. <laughs> we're waiting for a lot of things in our lives, but what we are meant to do, ultimately, in addition to those things, is to wait for the day of the Lord. The Christian life is ultimately just a life of waiting. And so what I'd love to do to um, drive us home and really land this in our world is to take you to the same verse that Matt read for us before, 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to take you through a couple of verses here. So if you have your Bible, this one is worth flicking to. It's 2 Peter chapter 3. It's near the back end of the New Testament. Uh, If I get really lucky, I'll be able to find it myself. Is this a situation where I need the contents page. Found it. 2 Peter, chapter 3. We're going to have a look at verses 10 through 14 because that's where in the New Testament the idea of the day of the Lord really comes alive and becomes brutally clear in what we are meant to do with it. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In Obadiah, there was that thief thing about total or partial destruction. The thief language here is that you will not expect it. Um, There are some people um, who think about this idea of a rapture and they think that you can miss the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will be brutally obvious. It says, The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. I wonder at this stage if you'll let me try to change your mind about something. A lot of people's major objection to Christianity is judgment. And today, that's basically all we've talked about. They say, I could never be a Christian Because there's this judgment thing. I could never worship a God who would judge in that way. And that's a very reasonable thought. But can I try and add a little bit of depth to it? I said at the start, who is this book written for? It was given to the J's about the E's. What's the purpose of this book if the E's never received the prophecy against them? And I would suggest that actually it's written for the encouragement of suffering people. Judgment can be an encouragement and a comfort to those who are suffering. And actually, I would say that the, um, the, the, the objection that I can't become a Christian because of judgment is quite Western, and it's often offered by people who don't, experience as much suffering and end up driving towards that comfort. 
But as soon as you say to someone who has experienced gross injustice in their life, as soon as you say to someone who carries a very real sense of victimhood, that there is a day when the bad will be judged, that there is a day when the wrong will be righted, that there is a day when all of the evil in this world, including the evil to our physical bodies, will be done away with, they start to actually want the day of the Lord. And me, in my kind of privileged Westernhood, I need to realize that actually the day of the Lord is good. I want this to be true. I want a day of the Lord. We'll pick it back up in 2 Peter 3. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be, Christians? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Why would we live godly and holy lives? But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So you are going to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is, and so the call is live holy right now. Can I just lay it out there and you can do whatever you want with it? How's your holiness? December is a month where a lot of people check out of holiness. It's the end of the year, whatever. I'll start the gym in January and um, I'll, I'll pick back up on trying to be holy, trying to live a, trying to live a life that actually pleases God. In, I'll do it in January. We're going to a place where righteousness dwells, the new heavens and the new earth. And so we try and live holy lives right now. Verse 14 and 15, these are the final verses for today. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Um, This verse is really profound for you. If you are still checking out the Christian thing, maybe if you're going to go along um, to Alpha, um, if you are not sure how God looks at you, can I lay it out really clearly? Because Jesus died on the cross for your sins in your place as your substitute and rose again to actually show that it worked, you can be, in the language of verse 14, spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. In our natural selves, we are spotted, blamed, and at war with God. That is for you if you are not a believer in this house today. But because of what Jesus did, if you will repent, if you will put your trust in him, if you will give him your sins so that he will give you his goodness, then when God looks at you, he wouldn't say, that's my Josh and he's turned away against me. That's my Elizabeth and she's lived a life against me. He would look at us and say, that's my daughter. She's spotless. She's blameless. I am at peace with her. And I'm going to one day come back, right all wrongs, establish the new heavens and the new earth, and we are going to be together in community forever. And that can be yours if you will repent and put your faith in Jesus today. That is an offer to you. Now, Christian, let me turn to you with verse 15. I said at the top, some of us are just phoning it in for 2022. We're kind of done. Verse 15 
Can you see the urgency here? Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. If you are suffering in this moment, how long, O Lord, till you come back and do this until more people are saved first? Why is Jesus delaying his return for so long until more people are saved first? Um, There are people in this room, literally, I can see them now, who have become Christians in 2022. If Jesus had come back in 2021, I'll let you fill in the gaps. But because he has delayed his return, it means salvation for some. If you feel bored with life and you're not sure what's actually worth giving yourself to, the place that human history is going is the return of Jesus. It's the day of the Lord. The reason it hasn't happened yet is there are more people to be saved first. Give yourself to that great work. Let me pray. God, we love you and you are so good to us even when we are not good to you. We ask that you would come back soon because there are many of us hurting and we would love for the new heavens and the new earth to be installed right now. But God, please save many people first. And everybody who agreed said...